Welcome back to our Wednesday night Bible study. We are in Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, last week we introduced Isaiah. He's one of the major prophets. Uh, he uh, has a lot to say, hence the term major prophet. And uh, prophesies, the, the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters, there's a lot of stuff in here. And we're not going to read it all. Last week we read chapter 1, which just gave us a great feel for the, the context of the entire book. If you missed last week, you really should get uh, a CD of it or watch it online or whatever uh, so you can catch up and get a feel for Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a dramatically uh, powerful uh, work. He's a very, very powerful prophet. Spoke in great detail, uh, speaking to the nation of Judah about their sins, warning them of the judgment that was to come, also promise of the great redemption. But throughout the book of Isaiah, there are dramatically clear prophecies of the Messiah, which describes Jesus in absolutely incredible detail. It is so strong, as I said last week, that Jews, this is problematic for them. If you're a Jewish person who doesn't believe in Jesus, Isaiah is a problem for you. Because Isaiah is so clear about Jesus, it's absolutely stunning. You'll see as we'll get into it. How long it takes us, I don't know, but um, we'll point out as we go along. But uh, so they account, they counter in one of two ways. They either try to explain away whatever prophecy that is clearly talking about Jesus, saying, "Well, that's not really what it meant, and this word meant this," and and in the context, it's you know whatever. So they kind of dance around it that way. Uh, but some of it is so crystal clear that Jews claim some giant conspiracy uh, that what Christians did is they read the book of Isaiah and took portions of it and wrote it into the gospels. That's the only way they could even begin to explain how Jesus could so accurately nail what is described here. Well, either you believe in this great conspiratorial thing and Christians are all evil and you know Jesus wasn't the Messiah or if Jesus really did live his life and those things happened to Jesus, crucified on the cross, pierced in the side, all these things which the prophet here gets very specific about, man, you got a problem because clearly Jesus, according, if you believe what he did and read Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah, you can't possibly miss this. So they got to struggle with it and they got to hide from it the best that they can. But it's very, very strong. Okay, so we read chapter 1. And uh, uh, very, very clearly lays out the the feel of the the, uh, book. Um, He goes on and he starts speaking about judgments against uh, Jerusalem and Judah. And a lot of it's about Judah. Um, And he gets through chapter 5. And then all of a sudden chapter 6, he, uh, for some reason at this point, stops and describes his calling. This is the call of Isaiah the prophet. So we want to read this. It's kind of interesting that he would start with this. But he goes to the first five chapters. And then he says, okay, this is, this is how I got here. Check it out. In the year that King Uzziah, we read about him, died, he has this vision. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their face, and with two wings they were flying. Wow, very winged things, uh, these angels. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
So they're flying around God, just praising God and worshiping God and glorying over God. And God's just, <laughs> just digging it because he loves it when his creation praises him. At the sound of their uh, voices, the doorposts and threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So this wasn't like, holy, holy, holy. It's like, whoa. I mean, when they cried out, holy, they're praising God. It was like intense praise. And they could feel as these angels spoke out and praised God and were doting over God with all glorying over, over God. And he sees this incredible holy sight and, and, and it dawns on him. That he's in the presence of God. And he's seeing something that no one has seen. And what am I even doing here? And I'm a filthy rotten sinner. And yet I'm seeing this. And he cries out. He says, woe to me. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King. The Lord Almighty. And he. The basic premise is that anyone who looks at God. In human form. Is doomed. You cannot see God and live. You will die. Uh, so just the fact that he would see something so holy, you know, I'm toast. I'm going to die. You know, I mean, you, you can't possibly have this much of a, a vision of God and not perish being unredeemed. Now, from a Christian standpoint, it's very different today because we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ has cleansed us. We now can have access to God and have visions of God and all these kind of things. We're not doomed if we see God. Now it's like, hallelujah, this is very cool. So he's freaking out. And then he says, then one of the seraphs, one of these angels flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So uh, I don't even know what all this means. Now there's great Bible teachers who are really into the Old Testament. They got all these analogies and stuff. Uh, The obvious analogy is that through the blood of Christ, as I just said, we our sins have been atoned for. We can be in the presence of God. Up until this point, if you're get in the presence of God or too strong in the presence of God or see God somehow, you're you're toast. And this angel takes this coal and touches his lips and and says, "You've been atoned for." So, so somehow that act, whatever you know, is heaven. It's like I don't know what's going on, but so anyway, uh, so his sins were atoned for, so he doesn't perish. All right, so so he's he's made in that instant like we are through the blood of Christ now. Okay. Um, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Whom shall I send, and who will go for us?" Now this is very interesting. We we I don't know if you remember when we read in the old. Te- uh, uh, I can't remember. Where was it we read it? Somewhere in, uh, maybe it was somewhere in Kings or something. But there's, there's this analogy where it talks about God sitting around and discussing with the angels, what are we going to do? What do you guys think we should do? Which is quite fascinating. It's not that God doesn't know what to do. Okay? God knows what to do. But God loves to engage his creation. And get them involved. You know what? I'm convinced. I know many of you have heard me describe many times uh, how I believe that we're on earth as, as the biggest halftime show in, in eternity. And the, Satan has fallen. And the judgment hasn't come yet. And then we're kind of acting out before God. And all of the universe is getting a chance to see what happens when people obey God and when they disobey God. That's why we're here. 
And he forever answers the questions in the rebellion that Satan had against God and, and said, you know, God doesn't care. God doesn't love you. And then God demonstrates his love by dying for people like us. All of heaven is seeing this. And this is, this is forever settling the question of the rebellion that Satan had, which is no small feat. A third of the angels. I mean, if, angels, if Satan could have gotten a hundred angels together to come against God, that would have been something. A thousand. Like, how do you pull that off? But he gets a third. Now, we don't know what he said, but we can just assume this is the same kind of thing that he says to us. God doesn't care. God doesn't love you. And, uh, and anything else. But as, as often as I've shared that scenario, which is, I, I believe, what is going on, uh, you still have to go back to what was Satan and the angels thinking? I mean, even do the math. You've got a third of the angels. Well, do the math. One third on your side, two thirds on God's side. That's a bad deal for you, okay? But yet they launched this rebellion in eternity trying to overthrow God. Now, something you've never really heard me talk about, but another thing that I just hypothesize, and that is this. Stop and think. Satan had to think God was beatable. They all had to think God was beatable. Why would they think this way? What could possibly get in these eternal creatures' minds who are experiencing the glories of heaven that God was beatable? Because there's no way, even with a third against two-thirds, just the math, you think they wouldn't have done it. But they obviously thought this was doable or they wouldn't have tried. Clearly, that would make sense to anybody. Why would you go up against an army if you didn't think you could win? All right? What is, I'm telling you, there's something about the way God works that at times, now listen to me, don't freak, don't panic, just hear me through this, that at times communicates, I think, to some people that God is not all that strong. And he does this intentionally. I mean, it's one, stop and think how many times Christians have thought, you know, why doesn't God just show up? Why doesn't God just come down and, you know, in the middle of, you know, a Packers-Bears game, when God is blessing the Packers and hitting the Bears, of course, we all know that. But why doesn't God show up at a Packers-Bears game on national worldwide television and say, yo, everybody, repent, I'm God. Now, you got to admit, that would be impressive. Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he show up and do more dramatic things? Why isn't he kicking butt and taking names and stuff like that? That is the way... So the way I do it, and we can all thank heavens I'm not God, but I mean, I'd show up and just kick butt. But there's something about God that is extremely understated. That at times, if you don't understand it, will make you think maybe God is not all that present. Or as Satan would have interpreted, not all that powerful. And of course, he attacks God, and God flicks him out of heaven like a booger. You know, God has so much power. I'm sure Satan and his angels were stunned. I don't think they had any idea. He was that powerful. Now from time to time, God has displayed his great power in the earth, particularly when he brought the Jews out of Egypt. But he was trying to make a nation out of slaves. He had to burn into their minds that they were of great value to him. But stop and think about it. Even though God did this, Egypt didn't become Jewish. You thought if anybody would have repented and believed in God, it would have been the Egyptians who went through all this. They didn't repent. All the nations around them heard of these stories. They didn't repent. Even the Jews themselves barely repented. You know, it's, it's, it's quite amazing when you, when you think about it. Even in that, dis, that amazing display. But anyway, going back to this idea, 
that I think at times God communicates a degree of silence that is, that is stunning to people. Because I believe God loves and delights to work through his creation. He doesn't want to show up at Lambeau Field and kick butt and take names. You know what he wants? He wants you to show up at Lambeau Field and love people. And be kind to the guy who just poured beer down your back. Uh, and yelling and cursing. And you're, you're trying to be nice in the midst of unniceness. Uh, to be patient to people. To reach out and help people. And, and it's awfully understated. But yet great, great power. Through the preaching of the gospel. And living out the life. The Christian life that God has called us to do. That we can change the world. Okay. This is the way God. And God loves to work through his creation. Remember Jesus would come along and he would do a miracle. Something dramatic. And he would tell the guy, don't tell anybody. Do you remember this? How often this would happen? And I've heard different theologians try and explain what he was trying to do. And, you know, some people thought, well, maybe he's just using reverse psychology. Because when he would tell them, they'd go do it all the more. I don't think so. I think Jesus really meant, don't tell anybody. Why? Because God loves to be understated understated you know so that when others would run into him say man weren't you sick didn't you have a broken leg well yeah how'd that happen well you know and he'd start talking about Jesus you know instead of running through Jesus did this for me Jesus did this for me God loves to use his creation loves to be understated in very very many ways the miracle if you stop and think about this and there's throwing a lot of weird theology kind of thinking what ifs as my brother would say what if what if into your head but the miracle of Christianity isn't really uh, that, that, that God is so well, how do I want to say this well here let me, let me give you an example if we put a gigantic generator that could create all this power, uh, that could power half the city in this sanctuary. That's doable. Because it's a big sanctuary, you could put a great big generator, okay? That's not what's so impressive. What would be so impressive is if I could get that generator into this watch. So what if the miracle of Christianity is really the fact that God can be so big, but be in you. And be understated in you. But you'd have this incredible power. That's really the miracle. You know not that God is so big. That God would be so big in a little tiny space. This is the miracle. So here's God. We see this and we've seen this many times. Even back in the book of Job. Which we'll come back to by the way. We skip Job and I'll explain that later. Uh, you know God's up there and he's talking. And he's having discussions with things. And oftentimes asking questions. What are we going to do about this, guys? What are we going to do about this? How are we going to affect this situation? Different angels would get up and say different things. Well, we see that same scenario here. What is God doing? He loves to engage his creation. He desperately wants to change the world that you live in. But he wants to use you to do it. This is why he wants you to pray. It's as if God is saying to you, how are we going to change your world? And we're going, well, you're God, just do it. No, 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 no. God is saying, how are we going to change your world? Well, Lord, I, there's that guy Bob. 
you know, I work next to him at work. He's having a really hard time financially. Could I pray for him that you could turn things around in his life. God says, cool, let's do that. Or, you know, I have a friend who's really sick. The doctor says uh, they may not make it. It might be terrible, horrible cancer that they have no cure for. They don't know yet. Why don't you touch her, God? And God goes, cool, let's do that. And all of a sudden, Sally comes to you and says, man, you said you were going to pray for me. And the doctor said it's, 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 they thought it was something, but it's not. It's, it's nothing, and it's great. And what is that? That's God showing up and starting to move in your world. But he's waiting for you through prayer to direct the hand of God. I'm convinced the reason a lot of us don't pray, there's all kinds of reasons we don't pray. That's a whole other two-hour sermon. But I think one of the reasons we don't pray is I don't think we realize the effectiveness of prayer when we do it correctly. Because what God is doing is as he does here, God is asking, all right, guys, we got problems. We got to fix things. And in verse 8, he says, who am I going to send? Who am I gonna send? Who's going to go for us? What do, what do you guys think? The angels, all these people around the throne. Who's going to go? What should we do? This is truly amazing. And again, it's not the first time we've seen this picture of God looking, asking questions. What are we going to Is it because God doesn't? Of course he knows. But he delights in using his creation, letting his glory and power use us, which is great. It gives us value. We have a purpose. We're not just a bunch of zombies that we sit around and let God do whatever he wants to do. And then we kind of come along and, you know, we just got to do whatever God says. You know, I don't really have much to say about anything. No, 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 no. You're a king. You're a priest in God's kingdom. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus was always telling guys, pray, man. He was always egging people, pray. Come on, man, pray. Seriously, honestly, you got to pray. Why? Because God will do whatever you say. What? What? I'm telling you, we don't believe it, really. If we really believe it, we do it. The reason we don't, we don't think God will do what we say. We don't, we don't, we think we're just little pawns in God's world and we're not realizing that we are direction givers to God. How can we be direction givers to God? I don't know. It's just what he does. He loves to ask the questions, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And one of his creations steps up and says, how about we do it this way? And then God says, great, let's do it. That's what he wants to do in your life. This will melt your brain if you think too much about this, but it's pretty impressive when you start thinking about this. So here, Isaiah's there. First of all, he gets this thing to clean him up because he's afraid he's going to die because he has no business being there in the presence of God. Okay, so he's, he's redeemed like we are through the blood of Christ through this coal thing, whatever that meant. And he hears God talking. What are we going to do? What do you guys think? And then Isaiah goes, I'll do it. (laughs) Isn't that great? Who shall I send? God says, who will go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. I'll do it. Now there's a, got a hundred sermons right there that you could preach. Just on the willingness of God, use me. God wants to use somebody. You're all sitting there listening to me right now. Either the the East Side Campus, West Side Campus, Appleton, wherever, Stevens Point. You're sitting there listening to me right now. And God is saying, I want to use people to change the world. I think all of you, at some level, believe that. You can grasp that. Okay, God wants to use us. But 
do you really get? He'll use you. Not just the guy next to you. Do we have the attitude, God, I know you're wanting to use somebody here. Make it me. Do it through me, God. Use me. Man, this kind of attitude we should all have. God, use me. Use me to touch a lost and dying world. I remember a prayer I started praying some years ago. And, and you have to understand, I'm a pretty late bloomer uh, for a lot of different reasons. I didn't even start having any ministry of any measurable consequence till I was almost turning 50 years of age. You know, I was about 47 or something like that. When God started opening doors for me and started using me. That was about 10 years ago. Um, and it wasn't that I wasn't a Christian all that time. I was, but just never really finding my place. But I, I remember praying this prayer. I said, Lord, I know you want to use me. And I've said, here am I, use me. But you haven't used me. Maybe I'm not usable. So I changed the way I was praying. And I started saying, God, make me usable. Do whatever you have to do in my heart. So I can be the kind of man you feel comfortable in using. And I'm telling you, that prayer changed my life. And things started turning around in my life. And things were dramatically, and are dramatically different today. Quite frankly, anybody even knew knew me two, ten years ago would be stunned to look at my life today. Five years ago even. I mean, I'm living out one of the most dramatic things. And no one's more surprised by this than me. And I'm loving every second of it. I'm having more fun than should be legally allowed. But God has been blessing. And you, why? Because I'm so cute. Because I'm so smart. I'm not that smart. I am that cute. But I'm not that smart. And who knows why? Except that I started saying, God, I believe you want to use me. But there's something in my heart, something in my life that's just getting in the way. And I pray that you will make me usable. Make me the kind of person you can use. And, uh, and God started doing that. It's, it's a great joy to be able to, whatever role you play. Now, it might be a public role like myself. It might be most of us private roles in the middle of nothing. And by the way, you know who gets the most credit in heaven? It won't be us guys who get up there and talk to thousands of people. And even though lots of results can happen... The people who are going to get the most credit are the ones who do the private version. Who do it on a very small scale. Why? It's just the way Jesus said, to whom much is given, much shall be required. You know, uh, James even warned, you know, you don't want to be a leader. (laughs) You, You might want to take that a little easily. Because those of us who are leaders, who have these public roles, are going to be held to a much higher judgment. It scares the willies out of me when I think about that version of things. You know, but we all have different callings. God has us all in different places. So don't be discouraged because you're not, you know, speaking to millions of people all over the globe like me flying all over the place. Who are you? Are you saying, Lord, here I am, use me. And if God's still not using you, to say, God, make me usable. Make me the kind of person you can use so we can start changing stuff in my world. Because I promise you, God is looking at your world right now And he's saying this. What should we do? What should we do? How are we going to change these people's lives in your world? And he's looking at you. Saying, what are we going to do? Sadly, most Christians are sitting there looking at God. God, what are you going to do? And it's like the staring of the, what are you going to do? Is that each other? What are you going to do? I don't know. What are you going to do? I don't know. 
Like my wife and I, when we go out to eat, where you want to eat? I don't know where you want to eat. I don't know where you want to eat. I don't know where you want to eat. I'm going to go anywhere. <laughs> Actually, yeah, getting off track, but it reminds me of a time my brother Ed and myself and his wife Gail, my wife Debbie, we flew to St. Louis. This is years ago. I had another plane and we flew to St. Louis and we're going to go out to dinner. And we couldn't decide. And like the whole day, the whole night went to nothing. And we eventually, because everything was closed and it was too late to get in and the long lines because we waited so long. We finally went to, uh, you know, like a Burger King to get something to eat. Who flies to St. Louis to eat at Burger King? That would be us because we can't make up our minds where we want to eat. Anyway, we still laugh about it to this day. But, uh, you know, God's saying, what are we going to do? Don't be looking at God saying, God, what are we going to do? Say, Father, I ask that let's do this and let's do that. And if God doesn't want to do something, he'll speak to you. James, or not James, but John uh, wrote, he says, this is how we know that we have the right prayers because God answers the prayers. Which, by the way, if you're praying, God, do this, God, God, do this, God, do this, he never does it. Time to change the prayer. Say, okay, Lord, uh, how about doing this? Because you start praying the right prayers, God will answer. He will show up. And he delights and he wants to work through you. Anyway, so he said, here my Lord, send me. And he said, go tell these, this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Uh, Jesus actually quoted this. Uh, He says, you know, they hear, but they never, they listen, but they never hear. They see, but they never perceive. uh, Because their hearts are so hard. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes otherwise they might see with their eyes hear with their ears understand with their hearts and turn and be healed jesus actually quoted this and explained to his disciples that's why he's speaking parables so that hearing they can't hear and that seeing they can't see i'm telling the truth right in front of them and it's so understated and so off the radar they they trip over it and they can't get it quite amazing then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants. And he starts talking about, you know, the, the judgment that's coming. And uh, it's kind of interesting. Remember, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the thing with prophecy is they'll be coming along talking about something contemporary event and then they'll jump into the future about something and then back to a contemporary event. And uh, that's, you'll see that a lot through Isaiah here. Um, all right, now chapter 7. Um, he's going along. Uh, chapter 7, verse 14. Well, actually, let's go to verse 13 as we wrap this up. This is like one of the Yo Mama prophecies about the Messiah. Then Isaiah said, Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? And then skip verse 14, and then verse 15. He will, I'm sorry, not 15, where was it? I want to pick it up. Oh man, where is it? Uh, Verse 18, all the way down to 18. In that day the Lord will whistle for flies from the distant streams of Egypt and for the bees and from the land of Assyria. And they will come at once and settle. And he starts using all this thing and talking about this judgment and stuff, okay? You you, you try the patience of men, you're going to try the patience of God and he starts talking about judgment. But then, in between this, this little sandwich, he starts talking about something. That is prophetic in the future. Again, 
non-believing Jews will say, no, 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 the context here is of, but that's all prophecies are like that. All prophecies, if you take it in the context, they're never prophecies because it has to be right. The reason they know they're prophecies is because they never happened. Uh, I gave you the analogy like of someone, uh, you know, a thousand years ago reads a document. Uh, I'm sorry. If someone writes a document today and says about Celebration Church at the East Campus, you know, you have this auditorium, you have the main auditorium, and you, and you have the, the uh, TNT for the kids, and your office is over here, and you've got this uh, 1,000 uh, student school in the back, and, and you have, you know, the weird psychedelic carpeting up here, and I'll also go, whoa, 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 whoa. what did you just say? Well, what part? See, the thing that would stand out to us is the description of a 1,000 uh, student school, because it doesn't exist. Clearly that has to be a prophecy. Even though it's sandwiched in the midst of stuff that does exist, that part stands out because it hadn't happened. And a thousand years from now, someone would go back and read it all. They'd say, well, how do they know that's a prophecy? Well, because it hadn't happened yet. Okay? So, anyway, so here is this thing that all of a sudden he sandwiches in, in the midst of God talking about, you're really ticking me off, you're making me mad, flies are going to be coming, you're going to have all this judgment. And then, verse 14, all of a sudden he says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and she will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Well, this is the famous verse that we read all the time every Christmas. The New Testament goes back and speaks of this prophecy of the virgin who would conceive and give birth to a son and his name is, will become Emmanuel. This is Mary becoming pregnant by miracle uh, and, and giving birth so again if you were to read strictly a modern Jews interpretation of this they say no that's not really what this is talking about because of the context but you have to understand a lot of these prophetic things are boom 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 they just kind of pop out and we'll see a lot of these again why do they have to explain it away well it's pretty blatant here a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and his name will become Emmanuel I mean this happened 2000 years ago problematic for them but so that's a very very famous verse in Isaiah um, and then um, he goes along and he does the same thing again uh, in chapter 9 we'll end with this part this is also a very famous Christmas verse because he's starting to talk about the Messiah that's going to come but then gets in much greater detail so this is, he's just starting here uh, for example chapter 9 Verse 5, every warrior's boot will be used in battle and every garment rolled within blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So he's talking about this big nastiness that's coming. And then all of a sudden, starts talking about something that's out of place, something that hadn't happened. Now after it, stuff happened, but this section hadn't happened. That's how we know it's a prophecy. They're going along and then all of a sudden they would just take these leaps into something in the future. Again, like if someone wrote a document today describing this building and in the midst of the description describes something that isn't here, we would know, wow, that's got to be a prophecy. This is how they knew this. So here he's talking about the warriors, boots in battle and all this horrible stuff's going to happen. And then verse 6, for unto us a child is born. What do you mean a child? What was he doing? He's talking about judgment all of a sudden a child is born? For unto us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing 
and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then he goes on continuing to talk about God's anger against Israel. So here's the sandwich thing, and it is the prophecy. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Talking about the Messiah. Talking about there's going to be this guy who's going to show up. This guy's going to come, and he's going to make things right. And it's talking about Jesus, who's about to come. And again, it gets much more detailed yet. This is just the warm-up. It's, it's the next stuff that they really start having a problem with, because it's... It's so descriptive of Jesus, they think that we read it and went back and made it up later. Uh, but uh, very, very powerful stuff. This is, by the way, the lyric of the very famous Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Uh, and, you know, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, all this, you know. Uh, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father. That whole thing, I can't sing it, but uh, <laughs> you know, the song I'm talking about, that big hallelujah chorus, it's all from this verse. They got that whole big hallelujah chorus and all this incredible music. If you listen to the words, it's all the words of this prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah, a major prophet who brought incredible prophecies of the coming of this incredible Messiah, the promise from God that, as Moses said, the Lord will send someone uh, and he will make things right for his people. Uh, very, very powerful stuff. Okay, so now, next Wednesday, when we get together again, we'll pick it up and start looking at some of these very impressive prophecies and get into it and eventually get to chapter 53. Again, we're not going to read every single one. We'll skip over a bunch of it. But uh, when we get to chapter 53, this is when you go, wow. He's got to be talking about Jesus or as some Jews today say, either that or they read this and went back and wrote it into the, into the Gospels. That's how descriptive it is of Jesus Christ. Very, very powerful stuff. So, okay, enough for tonight. We'll pick it up, pick it up again next Wednesday.